You know, I've always had it bookmarked in my mind to talk to Iman Cafell at length uh, in a spotlight episode um, because there are, you know, Iman's been a friend of the show from the get go. I think he was on our first or second episode even, but uh, you know, every time he's on, there's always this little tidbit that he'd throw out here or there about some other aspect of his life. And I was like, I really got to sit down and just get the full story. And he and I have done that a lot offline. Um, but I was like, I was holding my fire a little bit offline even in like, I don't want to ask too many questions cause I want to save this for on air. So I was thrilled. We finally got a chance to sit down and talk at length. And uh, there's just incredibly few people that you can talk to whose life stories are going to encompass two civil wars, combat deployments, and the cornucopia of issues that arise out of a career in law enforcement. Now, that's just a very, you know, rare life. Uh, so I'm not going to do too much more foreplay. You guys are really going to enjoy this one. I had a blast talking to him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this spotlight episode of the Weekly Havoc. Normally, we have a roundtable discussion of the week's events with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal, but today... I made an excuse to have a talk with my buddy, Iman Cafell, who has been on the show multiple times, every time teasing out a little bit more of his backstory. And it was a uh, long overdue that we actually sat down and flashed a spotlight on him and actually just talked about his life, his experiences, his point of views, uh, unfiltered and with no interruptions. Iman, as you may recall, is an eight-year army vet. He was in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He is now a police officer. He had time in patrol, plainclothes, Metro SWAT. He was a detective in major crimes. He's currently a detective in our narcotics task force with the DEA, as well as serving on the DEA special response team. He is also, not least significantly, the co-host and founder of Project Sapient, the number one law enforcement podcast on the interwebs. Hi, Iman. Hello, Chris. How you doing? Good, man. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, we're off to a banging start, man. Uh, this this New Year's got it all. Uh, I'm I'm torn between getting topical with you and diving into the personal stuff. But I guess let me let me warm up by uh, how's every how's the weather? How's COVID? <laughs> how's all that shit going up uh, for you? Well, the uh, the uh, weather. Well, we, we got a foot of snow last yeah. night, so okay. it's all good. But um, uh, weather's a uh, yeah, obviously extremely cold right now. But uh, yeah, everything else is good. I've been uh, been really really busy at work past uh, few months. Uh, obviously, with uh, COVID, uh, still same same stuff up here. Um, not as many restrictions, but uh, still happens from time to time, depending on uh, on the way the wind blows. Yeah. So what's that like for you? I mean, do you guys um, just on a day to day level, do you guys mask up? Are you I mean, I know you're not on patrol, so you're not interacting with the public a whole lot. But I mean, what, what, what's the battle rhythm as far as the covid protocols and all that with you guys? Um, when, when it first you know, hit, obviously, back in uh, March of 2020, uh 
couple of weeks later, we ended up, uh, you know, put a policy in place that everyone needs to be masked up at all times, uh, stuff like that. Uh, but in terms of the day-to-day operations, it never really stopped for us. Uh, you know, people were still out committing crimes. Uh, actually, uh, certain crimes were ramped up as a result of the masks because now people can freely walk into any store with a mask on and go rob it. You know, it's it's uh, it's uh, it, it was a very uh, good opportunity for those who want to commit crimes. Well, I know, I know everyone like anecdotally was like, when we put on these, uh, the masks for the first time, everybody was like, Hey, I'm like a bandit now, but that actually really happened. That really was. Oh yeah. No, no, it it really happened. Still happening to this day. Um, you know, it used to be that, you know, somebody, uh, somebody walks into a a bank or a convenience or whatever, wearing them, you know, full fledged, whether it's a neck gator or mask or whatever kind of rises the suspicion a little bit of these uh, clerks and managers, uh, now, not so much, you know, it's, it's yeah, like, of course. Of course. you know, now you can't really, uh, you don't, you, their spidey senses don't really tingle yeah, anymore. Right. But on the flip side, you can't say the people are profiling more either though. Right. Cause now <laughs> yeah, it's like, no. well, I wasn't really sure who he was. You yeah, know? yeah. 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 It makes it a lot harder for identification purposes. Yeah. Uh, you know, made, made it a lot harder on, in, in so many different levels. Um, Has your op tempo increased uh, nowadays? Is it, do oh, you yeah. find yourself busier? Really? Yeah, very, very busy. Uh, um, just it's it's a bunch of things going on, both you know, uh, the in the political environment to all the way down to the local environment. You know, the uh, set sentiment on law enforcement. You know, obviously, the past few year, couple of years has uh, really, really hit hard, and as a result, uh, people have become uh, more brazen, uh, less uh, less in fear of the criminal justice system, I guess, if you want to call it, or less respect to the criminal justice system as a result. So we've got a, a lot more crimes than, uh, than usual. How are you seeing that like manifest itself just with you? Do you notice now? I mean, obviously again, you're not doing patrol, so I don't know how much you're really going face to face with the public that you're not actively trying to arrest. Like if you see a civilian, it's probably cause you're trying to arrest them at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah so I mean, yeah. they were hostile anyway. So yeah. is, is, are you seeing more like pushback just at your level? Or is it just kind of you're hearing about it from other people that, oh, hey, those that are on patrol and are interacting with the public are getting a mouthful or an earful every time they go out? I'm still, you know, I'm still pretty active on the road anyways, uh, okay. you know, out, out doing the job. But uh, but in terms of like patrol level and, and stuff, they they. Uh, they they echo you know what's going on out there um you know you, you seem to be getting into a lot more arguments than you should out on the road um you know people uh second guessing everything you do uh no matter what um even though you're within the laws and all that which i don't mind explaining sometimes to people if they don't right. know they don't know but nine times out of ten these uh these bad guys that we go after um they know what they've done and and, yeah. and it you know they try to throw all sorts of cards out at us um especially you know with with my unit you know we're, we're more of a strategic unit you know we have strategic uh uh, um, uh suspects that we go after and uh, it, it's not because of the bald head but every time you talk about your unit i do think of the shield and then you're out there <laughs> like michael chiklis running around because you're always like yeah my unit you know we're a little we do these things and i know we've talked offline it's been like yeah, you know, we have our own way of dealing with these things. I'm like, he's fucking back there, you know, yep. with a telephone book. And uh, all I tell him, all I tell him is, uh, I tell people, listen, I, all I do is solve problems. <laughs> so, um, I think I, I wanted to get your blood boiling a little bit. So let me, let me throw out some red meat for you. Um, right. just because 
uh, you know, I've been pretty open about my, I mean, I don't know, open is the right word, but I have talked a bit of in the past about my growing up in New York city and, and kind of the impact that made on me with where I, how I see law enforcement, how I see crime, et cetera, et cetera. And now, um, you know, we elected a new uh, mayor in the city who's a cop. Um, he's definitely not a hardcore ex-cop. I mean, he, he was somebody that was very neurotic about his place in, in law enforcement and all that. But he seems like he was the best of a, of a kind of mixed bag of, of candidates. The biggest thing, though, is the new DA in Manhattan. Have you heard about him, Alvin Bragg? Not yet. No, I've not. Okay. Uh, I've not heard about him just yet. So, I mean, I, I this this might just be us nodding in agreement and sighing and and not accomplishing a lot more than that. But I feel like I just want to bounce this off you to start with. So, Alvin Bragg, uh, God, I'm, I'm punching this up on my phone. Do I make so I make sure I got the verbiage right? He, this is a direct quote. He said he will make. He wants his prosecutors to make incarceration a matter of last resort with a strong presumption against jail or prison for offenses other than murder, armed violent felonies that cause serious injury, domestic violence, sex crimes, public corruption, racketeering, and white-collar crimes. For anything else, most arrestees will likely be released, many on their own recognizance. So, and, and then on top of it, outside of exceptional circumstances, all prison time will be capped at 20 years with no life, uh, no life without parole for terrorists or cop killers. So um, he's basically falling in line with the jackass in Philadelphia, the jackass in San Francisco, and all these other uh, prosecutors that are trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, and uh, for me, I'm glad I'm no longer in the city when I hear that. Uh, but I also, um, I really weep because to my way of thinking, we've already figured out crime. It's, it's not a super complicated thing to have. It's like a common cold. You're never going to get rid of it. There's always going to be some, but it's not overwhelmingly complicated to understand the incentive structure that leads to crime. Yet we keep for political reasons, going back and trying to reinvent the wheel and go, well, maybe if we do this and take away this. So let me, I guess, let me maybe put a little bit more meat on the bone and besides just having you agree with me because i know we're probably on the same page with that is there any validity any validity to somebody sitting back and tinkering with uh local criminal laws like is there some place where there is uh overreach in the in kind of the 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 criminal code uh writ large so for example like you know uh, uh qualified immunity has come up where do you stand on that? Is that something where there's a little bit of give where, oh, okay, yeah, sure. We can maybe make some fixes there. Or is it really like, Hey man, people are going to be people. There's going to be fuck ups. There's not going to be a top down solution to this. All you can do is try to recruit better and train better and um, let the cards fall where they may, but we've really figured out how to actually deal with crime. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, all these uh, good idea fairies up in the political world, they uh, they tend to not get it right when when it comes to dealing with crime and certain laws and, and the criminal justice system, because nine times out of ten uh, these days, I don't see it as uh, I see it a lot more these days than in the past is where a personal agenda is put in front versus 
you know, what, what are the people saying? Uh, to me, a district attorney, to me as a cop, as, as a, you know, a district attorney is supposed to be the guy or gal who's on the side of law enforcement. You know, they're supposed to be the ones who are assisting uh, law enforcement or prosecution and all that stuff, uh, because we work hand in hand a lot with the district attorney's office, especially with major crimes, such as sexual assaults, murders, you know, you name it. Uh, a lot of major crimes, I, you know, I work hand in hand with the district attorney's office because, you know, we bounce, bounce things off each other. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a back and forth, you know, sure. relationship. Oh, um, I understand. I watch law and order. Yeah. But, uh, but when you have uh, DAs that are against these things, you know, uh, against uh, arresting uh, certain individuals or or want to do this whole bail reform type thing. You know, all of a sudden now you're working not, not so much against, I shouldn't do like us and them type thing. It, it, it's more like you are given a lot more opportunity for bad people to do bad things. Um, I'll give you an example, like in... Uh, Actually, after Ferguson, there was a whole police reform that happened all over uh, Baltimore and all that. Um, and I, I remember watching this special. Uh, it was actually on uh, Drug Inc., actually. Uh, it was mm. interesting. I was watching that. And uh, they, they were, you know, how they go back and forth between the drug dealer and the cops and stuff like that. And the drug dealer. And I was like, man, I, I wish this clip can be shown to the DAs and governors and mm. mayors just so they see what it what it looks like in this clip. So one thing I didn't know is uh, Baltimore completely got rid of uh, plainclothes officers at the time. Uh, so no more uh, plainclothes, you know, undercover cars, nothing like that. Everyone's in uniform, all marked cruisers, all that stuff. To the drug dealer, he said, I loved it. He said, now I can see bullies a mile away. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so so they took full advantage of that as a result, where now they don't have to look over the shoulders in case somebody like me or somebody, you know, somebody else in, in the profession who are undercover or plain clothes or whatever and able to observe and make major uh, cases against these dealers. Um, now that got taken away based on poor policy, poor uh, um uh, decisions that were made far beyond what any cop uh, decides. So let's talk about qualified immunity itself. Can you just explain for people that may not know what exactly it is or what your understanding of it is? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. The simplest thing, I'm not going to go into the whole legal jargon. The simplest example I give to people is if I'm me in the profession of my duties, uh, let's say somebody who has, I have to save his life, his or her life doing CPR. And while doing compressions, I accidentally crack a rib uh, because that does happen when you're actually doing CPR. Um, the individual that I, I saved and the family can't come back and sue me for it. Personally, can personally, personally. sue, not yeah. sue the city, not sue no, the municipality, personally sue, me. personally sue you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's all it did that in, yeah. in, 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 you know, I mean, you know, I dumbed it down as much as I could. Uh, one thing people don't realize qualified immunity is not to the cop, just cops. You have firefighters, you have uh, doctors, nurses, all in, in different professions that have some form of qualified immunity. The whole, the whole uh, political spin is, you know, qualified immunity allows officers to murder without, without, uh, you know, which is the, the biggest false, one of the biggest false narratives against law enforcement. I, I, I can believe that. And I won't push you on the stats for it. Cause I think, I think, you know, that makes sense just on the face, but what's disturbed me is how much the libertarian right, uh, not to sound too political, but the libertarian right has embraced 
kind of abolishing qualified immunity, uh, embracing bail reform, which is what drives me nuts about libertarians. They always want to be the cool kids at the party. They're like, yeah, we're not we're not leftists, but we're also going to go full bore with drug legalization and, and get rid of qualified immunity and bail reform. It's like, yep. dude, you're kind of cutting the legs out from under this. If you believe yep. in something, stand on on principle and make the case. Don't just exactly. always try to be the cool kid at the party. Exactly. Um, I, to me, it's not like law enforcement uh, is rolling in six figure salaries where you can then go, yeah, sure, personally sue me and I'll be able yes. to fight this in court. I mean, dude, it, it's a, to me, I don't see a lot of upside to it. I've been appalled at how many people have, um, that I respected, whose points of views I respected, have come out and tried to sp- cut the baby in half by saying, well, let's get rid of qualified immunity and that should solve Again, everything. It's, it's the, the lack of understanding of what it actually is. You know, if, if a cop actually commits a crime, which it does happen, that cop gets charged. Right. You know, it, it right. happens. Right. You know? so, right. so, uh, but, you, you know, uh, the families, here's the thing. The law enforcement is with the big target on back. We always get threatened to sue all the time, no matter what we do. Of course. But if we course. save a life, not save, like no matter what, it's just right. always there. Um, but when you take away that qualified immunity, now, now people can go after the individual officer. Like I said, we don't make that much money. So please, by all means, if you want my thousand square foot home, <laughs> by right. all means, right. you know, right. like, right. you know, it's, it's not like we, we, uh, we live this lavish life like uh, Hollywood likes to show uh, with Miami Vice and some of these other uh, cop shows. But, uh, but it's, it's one of those things that actually it, it does put protections in place should CPR go wrong just accidentally, or, you know, I, you know, I crack a rib or, or, or any, you know, I could give millions of examples. But sure. Sure. Is that where at least, you know, the, the, the city and town would cover us, uh, should we get sued through the, uh, through the city? So let me ask you about the natural byproduct of all that, which I, I think the statistics are starting to bear out. I don't have them right with me, but I know Manhattan Institute's done a lot of study on this, um, which is police inaction which I completely understand because you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. There's oh no incentive God, yeah. structure now to go out and actually solve anything or yep. get in the middle of something. It's like I, I have every reason to show up 20 minutes late to this thing yep. because it, there, there's just nothing there. Have you seen that yourself? Has that infiltrated into your personal experience? Uh, like, And I'm not saying to you to dime you out that you're missing calls. What I mean is just though, have you seen, have you like, Notice that if, if oh, absolutely I'm, if the I'm, in, yeah okay. in the profession, I've I've noticed it uh, in in my very department, in other departments, in in major city departments where I work and live, and and it's 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 everywhere. Um, me with 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 what I do, I kind of explained it actually. Um, one time, I said, you know, I I am not going to stop doing what I do because that's just the way I am. You know, I'm still going to go out there, do the job. Others don't feel the same and I don't blame them. Um, and, and I always, I always put it like this. I was like, you know, I, I always talk about the 80, 20 split, you know, in police departments, 80% are just there. 20% are actually doing the work. Now take that 20%, cut it down to 10% now after with all this, right? You take that 10%, cut it down to another 5%, only 5% of the, of any given police department is actually doing the work. At, at this point, from what I'm, I've been seeing, uh, especially like at, at my police department, at others that I've, I've seen, not too many out officers out there are proactively uh, hunting, so to speak. Um, they are more 911 calls in. All right, I'll do the bare minimum and then leave, you know, and, and that, that's, that's what it's turned into. 
And what's and what's troubling about that is that I mean, let's be honest: the the people that are going to be victimized by all that are generally the people that anti-police activists are trying to protect. Yeah, it, it's literally counterintuitive. You're literally because yes. uh, you know uh, people with means that don't want to deal with the police, they can always move. Oh yeah, people without means, they're fucked. So yes. I mean, yeah. So these are the people you're condemning by yes. by restricting the police. And it's funny. I mean, just on a, <laughs> I was thinking this the other day. Remember in the late eighties, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, uh, public enemy song, nine one one is a joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I was like, well, that used to be the complaint. Nine one one is a joke. I'm calling nine one one for help and they don't show up Yeah. now. It's, Oh, Hey, police are up in my shit. And now that's the bitch is now, Oh, well it's too much police. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, look, there's, Pick a lane, man. I mean, well, that, what, what do you want the problem to be? You know? I know you can't have it both ways when when up here and, uh, you know, where I work, uh, you know, the whole thing, body cams after Ferguson and all that body cams, body cams, body cams, you know, a couple of major uh, city departments finally uh, got body cams for their officers. And all of a sudden it became ACLU came down uh, up in my area and said, well, that's a violation of Fourth, Fourth Amendment rights now because your, uh, you know, big government is recording inside the homes of people that you're, you know, interacting with. So it's, again, it's one of those things you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Yeah. You exactly. know, that's, that's just, you, we're not going to turn off the camera when we go inside a house. No, that, that doesn't work that way. And, and, and that's why I think this is all just excuses for discontent. Yeah. It's like, you're looking for something to bitch about. Oh, there, yeah. there, there's, there's not a, an actual principle behind here. And, and I'm not trying to, I, I gotta be careful because it's easy for me to paint with a broad brush. And just I don't want to tar people that are well-intentioned, but I think sometimes uh, people don't always see the the natural the natural uh, evolution of the way that they're thinking, and that and that there's second and third order effects that they haven't calculated. Well, um, that's uh, that's what me and my guys we always thought, you know, uh, combat veterans at the job, and we always say even even uh, to lowest common denominator at our very own police departments when. Uh, you know, when we go in to do a major investigation or drug investigation, what have you, like with me, I always think about first, second, third order effects. You know, what right. what, what is that going to do? All right. Could I, could I do a surgical hit on a house, major drug dealer, kilos at a time, whatever. Could I do that surgical hit on this house? And then the second, third order effects, are they going to fall in line? Will it disrupt right. his his uh, his or her system? And, would, you know, third order effect, would, it would naturally be for me is the neighborhood comes back. You know, uh, comes back to life. You got kids playing outside, stuff like that. I don't think with on, the, on the, in the political world with this whole uh, law enforcement movement, they're not thinking of first, second, third order effects. They just want to just do and hope that that calms everyone or whoever they want to calm down, and that's it. Well, I mean, on its face, I think any kind of movement to defund police, limit police, restrict. I mean, obviously, you restrict police as far as oh, like, yeah. You know, general you know rule of law, but as far as restricting their manpower, restricting their capabilities to execute what is within the boundaries of the law, is yeah. is ludicrous. Um, and and I think the obvious example that I, I'm certainly not the first to point to was when the chop was developed in was it Seattle? Oh, right? sure. that, Chaz, was, yeah, Chaz, Chaz, yeah, yeah, Chaz. yeah, yeah. And um, and so they have that um police free zone. And what's the first thing they do? People are out there with guns trying to maintain some degree of order, except because they're not impartial police officers, it's order the way they want it to be. So now you just have, you know, former drug dealers, people with long rap sheets or whoever the right muscle is, is going to walk in 
and just say, well, I'm the biggest, baddest son of a bitch in this valley. So therefore I get to make the laws up. That's what happened with Chaz. Essentially, it became, you know, let's talk like military sense, military action. You know, you had an insurgency that took over a block in in Seattle, right? Then you had a warlord who took it over, essentially. And what ended up happening was we were getting intel and reports and all kinds of stuff in the law enforcement world that some major drug distributors were moving right through Chaz because it's a police-free zone. They're able to distribute from their guns, drugs, you name it. It became the haven for all that stuff. And the warlord called the shots of what goes where. Well, and this is kind of, I mean, not to get too nerdy and philosophical, which is kind of an easy leap for me to make, but, um, you know, that's, that's the solitary bandit theory of government, right? That yeah. all government is, is the solitary bandit that we all agreed, all right, this is the one bandit we're going to let actually be the warlord of all of us. And yeah. so we give them everything. Once you have other bandits crop up, though, and that one solitary bandit's being challenged, it's like, whoa, hold on. What, you know, all these people have different interests, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And yeah, that it's a, uh, it, it, it strikes me that if we took this out of the law enforcement realm and put it, say, in sanitation, it would make a lot more sense. Somebody's yeah. got to pick up the trash. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. So yep. you can bitch and moan about the garbage men that are coming and picking up your trash every day. Okay. Maybe they're not trained enough. Maybe yep. there's a personal dispute, but somebody's got to do it. Yep. So to talk about defunding or limiting them, Hey man, the trash is going to be there. You oh, can yeah. defund the, the sanitation department as much as you want. The trash is still going to be piling up. That yep. doesn't stop. So yep. what are you doing about it? Yep. You know, exactly. I, I, and I think sometimes we get confused with the law enforcement thing. So let me ask you about how this is translated then for you personally. And I'm going to relate this to your Instagram where I'm constantly you and Jocko willing the two assholes that get up at four o'clock in the morning and are, and post about it on Instagram. So I wake up at, at, and then go oh son of a bitch. I should have gotten up an hour earlier. <laughs> and, uh, and I know you've said in the past when we've talked that, you know, you get up because you feel that obligation to be on point. You feel the obligation to work out, to push yourself hard every day in the gym. So you're sharp as could be, for whatever's coming that day for your brothers, for everybody that's yep. out there, which I completely understand. What I wonder is with all this, with all the politics, with all the, the kind of resistance that you're facing on the job and the political currents, is there ever the temptation? And I know you said that you haven't changed that. You're like, Hey, I'm still going forward. I, I still try to do what I do. Is there a sense though, from you that you are leading with your chin, that every day that this doesn't blow back on you is a day that you were able to do it like you did, say, seven years ago and not pay a price. And you're like, ooh, dodge that bullet today. You know, um, is, there, is there that sense or are you literally like if you just shut it out, are you just tunnel vision and going, nope, I'm unchanged and everything is 100% the same. The seven year ago, me would completely understand where my head's at now. Or is there, has there been a difference? Not, not really um, in, in terms of me, because if, if, if uh, you know, me and you talk about my past all the time. So if we go, we'll get, we'll back up into yeah, my we'll past back a up. little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, where I grew up in Africa and Lebanon and, you know, I, I've survived to, through two civil wars before I came to the U S and I grew up in the U S you know, kind of uh, you know, dealing with, with racism and, and dealing with, with, you know, just, kids being assholes, you know, and in the end, you know, we were all growing up that way. And, and one thing that was kind of developed in me is this resilience to 
uh, negative to the negative things, right? So I've I've always been the type that no matter what, I get knocked down, I get back up, brush it off, and then I keep going. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, that's something I learned early, early on in my life, especially uh, with civil wars and and growing up here in the U.S. and in the cities. And uh, and it would it it kind of translated. It it stayed with me throughout my entire life. Is that resilience that I built uh, over time, where that warrior spirit in me, you know, if you want to call it that that always says you know says to me like hey quit being a fucking pussy and get to work you know like yeah. like there's okay. there's that voice in me that no matter what i do whether you know deadlifting or back squatting or doing whatever to doing a, a run with my squat team doing an op with my squat team or at work um you know uh, i may run a case and it doesn't work out exactly the way i wanted it to but then I stop, reassess. All right, let's see what where I went wrong. Okay, we reassess. Now I'm back on it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't stop me. You know, and and that's one thing that I, I've de- again, I've developed over time. And and no matter what, um, I'm gonna get through anything. And that leads me to actually. So I was out with a couple of guys from Boston Police. One of them, uh, John Moynihan. He was he was the one who got shot in the face mm-hmm. uh, a few years back. He's a prior ranger, on a grad at Ranger School. Like really, he's he's a stud. Good good dude. And I remember talking to him, and this was only a couple of days ago, and we were kind of sharing our past, how we grew up, and and you know, uh, questions were thrown at him, and he's really good about it to talk about that day and what he w- it was like for him after getting shot in the face. He said, you know, he was conscious through the whole thing. Um, he said that his biggest thing was deep, you know, that voice in his head, uh, whether it's from training, his family, whatever it was, that voice in his head just said, literally, stop being a pussy, get up, and let's go. Yeah. And and that that comes back to that warrior spirit that was developed in some of us, not in most of us, in some of us that really got that developed, that will literally, uh, you know, like like during a mission in Iraq, I tore my MCL. Uh, they wanted to ship me home. I never did. I said, fuck that. I'm staying like, you know, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. I'm still I still got a job to do. Same thing with here, you know, uh, to present time. Yeah, I still got a job to I still got stuff to do. I still got victims to protect and and, and I will continue to do that. As, as long as I'm able to. So I'll, I'll ask this question by taking the scenic route. Um, there was the, an old congressman up in Harlem in the city uh, named Charlie Rangel, who you may remember. He, he was a congressman. He served there for like 50 years or something mm-hmm. representing parts of Harlem. And he was a Korean war vet. And I think in the Korean war, uh, his unit, I forget what exactly happened, but it was something like it was a massacre. Like it, it, the, uh, uh, Chinese and the Koreans like overrun his position and, and it was just a bad day. And he, I think he ended up winning if I'm not mistaken, like I, he may, I, I can't remember exactly. I probably should Wikipedia this, but it was like the medal of honor or something. I mean, he, he, he was lauded for what he did that day. He of course became a very corrupt politician over time and did a lot of war politics, but he always said, like, even when they were trying him and when he was being brought up on charges for this, that, and the other, um, all of which probably was warranted, <laughs> but removing <laughs> that aside. Um, but he always said, listen, he's like, ever since that day in Korea, no, nothing's going to, nothing's ever phased me since. Like, yeah. every day I wake up and every day, like, that I'm alive after that day, it, it can't be that bad, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So, in that light, what was the worst day you've ever had? Oof. 
Um, uh, you know, there, there, there've been a, quite a few. I'm trying to think. Worst day. Uh, <laughs> all right. Worst day. We'll go. We'll go to, into my young life. Into my young life. Worst day. Uh, worst couple days. Uh, were um, watching a uh, Liberian soldier get blown up by a grenade, uh, jumping off a deuce and a half, because uh, I was really young at the time and scared the shit out of me. And then uh, the other one is. Uh, living through the uh, civil war in Lebanon and watching artillery strikes, you know, hit the side of the mountain and me running home to my mom and leaving my toys and everything uh, on the road. And, uh, and those uh, early on kind of uh, <clears throat> state, you know, obviously stayed with me uh, through, through, throughout my life. And uh, those are, which is kind of interesting. Those are the only two things I really remember from my childhood. I'm sure there were a lot more that my brain probably blocked off. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. but those are the two things that I remember because I, I don't even remember driving through Beirut from the airport to get to my village way down south because we live about an hour and a half away from Beirut. So we're, we're way down south. Yeah, yeah. So I can only imagine what the drive must have been like with all the checkpoints during the Civil War and, and, and all that stuff. So, so I, I, again, I bet you most of my mind, my mind blocked most of it out. Um, the, the other one is uh, when I was uh, in Iraq and one of our uh, soldiers uh, got blown up by an IED and it, it, it wasn't, you know, uh, I should, I shouldn't say we got desensitized to it, but it was one of those, like, you know, you hear about AID strikes when you're in country and you're like, ah, oh, shit. Okay. You know, it's, it just, you get that. Oh shit. For a second, you might get worried uh, about your next patrol, but then it goes away. You stop thinking about it when you're actually out there doing, doing your missions. But, uh, one the the worst one was uh, Sergeant Allers, uh, and he uh, it was like last minute, you know, fork on the road. We both his squad, my squad, we were both you know out doing our patrols, and last second, you know, uh, question was asked, hey, uh, we'll go left, you go right. Oh no, no, we'll we'll take the left, you take the right. So one of those, you know, where he got hit by the ID and got killed, his his gun truck completely. Uh, nearly disintegrated and you know uh, we had to uh, evac the wounded and and his body literally uh, that that was in pieces uh i went around collecting uh with my battle buddy uh uh robert carr uh picking up pieces of his body parts everywhere you know and putting it in a cooler in my gun truck in that moment i mean this is asking you to reach back a little bit but i mean in that moment did you was there a, a conscious um, thought that you had about your past, about thinking of the Liberian soldier or thinking about uh, Lebanon or anything like that, where you were like, wait, I've been here before in a lesser extent, maybe, but did you actually make a conscious choice of that? Or at that point, was that so internalized that just your mind was what it was and you were just focused on the moment and that wasn't, you didn't need that coping mechanism to kind of go back and nut up or anything like that? So I, I, I think kind of the the way you know that that whole day went out like any other day um it was just training took over you know okay. my mind my yeah. mind decided to turn off and yeah. get into doing what you got to do to survive um so so that that happened on on numerous instances uh obviously overseas and even at the job here uh where my training takes over and my training and and, and even i'll go to an extent of of the way I lived in my past, you know, where, where, again, that resiliency, where I push through no matter what, uh, I do what I, what needs to get done to get the, the mission successful and, and where, where it needs to be. So I think on that day or any other day, I don't really think back, 
really, I'm just like, all right, this is who I am and I'm going. Yeah. Uh, how, except, except for when people like me ask you about this stuff, how often do you think back to Africa and the Middle East? All the time. I mean, really? oh, yeah, okay. you, I get flashes of, of the soldier getting blown up or of the artillery hitting nearly every day. Uh, it'll, it'll come and go. Yeah. yeah. Usually they're quick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, doesn't last long. So, but, but yeah, no, I do, I do think. And, and then I think of the good times too, like, you know, out in Africa, getting stuck in the, in the muddy road, trying to go to the beach. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of good memories I had too. Um. <laughs> a rough time when when the, that's a good memory yeah that time no, i got I stuck on the way to the beach yeah that was really that was a real blast yeah um so let, let's let's talk about that because we we've, we've been we've been i've been itching for a conversation about liberia as you know for a while so um were you born in liberia yes i was okay and why were your folks there so my uh folks were there my my dad uh and my grandfather uh both had a store in in uh, right in Monrovia uh right in the city capital and my dad worked for a flower company uh, i forget one of the major ones uh he doesn't even remember which one but it was one of the major flower companies um he worked at their factory uh lugging the flower in and out and you know putting it on on uh, connex boxes to ship overseas so we, he wasn't a manager. No, no, he was a worker. So well, was I understand. How did he get to Liberia? Why oh, Liberia? So, Why was so, he even there? So it's funny, Lebanese. We we have our our pl- go to places for work. <laughs> oh, really? so oh yeah, wow. so Liberia, Sierra Leone, Ghana, uh, Ivory Coast. Okay, uh, those are like the go to places for Lebanese to go to. Uh, there's parts of Europe that uh, has a, a lot of Lebanese. Same thing with the U.S lots of Lebanese. So we're, we're very, uh, we take business opportunities anywhere we can get them. (laughs) Got you. So how long had he lived in Liberia? Was he a native at that point? Uh, no. So, so, uh, the way I understood it is, you know, Lebanon was where we went to vacation, which is kind of funny again, Mm. you know, civil war and everything, but that's where we go to vacation back to our village. Back to the motherland. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Liberia is where the work was, you know, whatever it may have been. My grandfather on my mother's side, um, he worked in a, he worked a diamond mine. That was his thing, you know, going, yeah, digging up diamonds in in Africa. We, We, I mean, he did very well. We did very well until this civil war broke out. Then we just left everything. So which civil war was this? Was this the first Liberian civil war? No, this was the, the second one. So uh, Sam Doe was the first one back in 1980. And this was right. when Charles Taylor uh, came up, which around yeah. 19. I, I know in all the uh, history that I've always read was like 1989 was when he actually made landfall. But it was much earlier than that. The The priming for the civil war for him started, you know, Two years, two three years before he actually made landfall into uh, into Liberia. I didn't realize that he he was. I mean, I know I'd always joke that I couldn't wait to talk with you about Charles Taylor, but I didn't realize he was that directly related to your family's experience. That that yeah. really is what drove it out. Yeah. Um. So before I I dive into the Charles Taylor subject, um, your family were they um, talk a little bit about just the the dynamics in Lebanon that led them to leave. Obviously the work is elsewhere. So that's going to be a driving factor, but I know Lebanon is a story of factions of that all the, and all that. How did the, the domestic politics play out for your family? Like where did they stand? 
what was their threats against them? Were they feeling discriminated or persecuted? Oh yeah. So, so in, in Lebanon, um, the different militias would drive through the village and you're the supporter for the day for whatever militia goes through, um, oh. you know, because there were so many factions, um, you know, I'll never forget a, uh, one of the, uh, factions, um, I'll translate it to English. They're, they're basically called the, um, the, uh, ant maneuver or something like that the ants that maneuver or something like that and and, and yeah and it, uh, if i translate direct to english but uh, but they came on uh, to our village and i remember one of the lookouts in the village this uh, this kid or uh, i don't remember exactly his age but the lookout ran through the village uh, which is kind of funny it reminds me of you know paul revere the british are coming the british are coming right, right literally he ran through the village yelling that they're they're uh, approaching the village so what would that mean i mean so my my comedic so me, mind goes that you guys are all yeah. going back there and going all right which ones my aunts come marching through jersey yeah, basically yeah finding that one and then running out with that right yeah i mean i i i remember just running directly to to my mother obviously being very young and crying and and we locked you know like anything locked the doors shut the windows and and that's it you know hope hope that it's not your door they're knocking on and if it is then you act like, oh yeah, great. I'm glad you guys are here. Yeah. You're my side. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. You just said that's the way to survive in, in those places. And when you experienced this, you were only experiencing experiencing this on vacation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't just do the all-inclusive no. in Cancun, could you? Yeah. Uh no, no resorts. Oh my lord. Uh, that's a bummer. Um so yeah, so what was it? I mean, I know you blocked out a lot of these memories, but do you know from your family or did you kind of pick up the vibe from your parents, um, the dangers of that drive to go from Beirut down to the village? If you're having to kind of fake your way through every checkpoint and go, oh, I'm glad you guys are here. You guys are my favorite to every single checkpoint of all these different groups. Um, I mean, surely everybody there knows the game and is aware that, yeah, you don't fucking like us. You're just saying that to get through the checkpoint. Yeah. So, I mean, was there a sense, uh, do you recall a sense of danger or, or have you talked to your parents about it ever since? Yeah. I mean, I, my parents here and there, I talk about it with them. Um, it's, it's mostly in reality is who has the most money to get through checkpoints. Okay. You know, and that's what you're given. It's kind of like, you know, being in uh, Mexico on your way to the border uh, into the U.S. where the cartels have checkpoints and you just got pay your way as you uh, drive through. So essentially, they're just getting shook down the whole way there yeah. and the whole way back. Yeah, pretty much. It's a hell of a vacation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Expensive yeah, I mean, vacation. It's expensive vacation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the amenities don't seem to match up with what you'd expect for that, that amount of money. I know. I know. Right. Holy shit. So, um. Did you ever talk with your parents or did they ever indicate that they were glad um, that they didn't, that they weren't uh, living in Lebanon, that they weren't working there, that they were like, yeah, thank God for Liberia. Or was there ever, uh, what was their, what was their take on that? Uh, you know, what, how emotionally did they feel about, I mean, obviously that's a rare life. Was it just so normal to them that they, they didn't really comment on it or. Yeah, what that's thing? what it was. It was like normal, normal life in Lebanon. Wow. Um, you know, you go to Liberia to make your money. Um, at the time, you know, uh, back then, Africa was flourishing. You know, Liberia was flourishing with economy and all kinds of stuff. And it was uh, it was actually really nice to live down there. Uh, you know, I've had so many friends. I went to private school in, in Liberia. 
And, uh, and yeah, Lebanon is where we went because there was no work in Lebanon. You know, there, there wasn't really anything to do. They're still fighting amongst each other, you know, right, all the different right. factions and militaries and whatever. So, so the, the, the Africa is where we went to actually have a normal life. And, and Lebanon was the vacation spot. So then what was your life like in Monrovia? Um, obviously you're lighter skin than the Liberians generally. Yeah. So, I mean, you're standing out. I mean, did that, were you getting, uh, were you getting white as right privilege or were you getting, yeah. Oh no, actually, uh, in, in Liberia, uh, the lighter skin you are, the more they hate you. Um, okay. you know, and, and, uh, one of those things where when I was born in Liberia, yeah, I got a Liberian birth certificate, but they would not give me Liberian citizenship because I wasn't dark enough. So my dad had to pay upwards. I think he said over like close to 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. Now, mind you, this is back in the early eighties. So 50 to a hundred thousand wow. dollars is, is quite the uh, amount yeah. to pay. Uh, that way the Lebanese consulate can give me a passport and citizenship. Uh, because Africa wasn't, you know, Liberia wasn't doing it. Um, and, and yeah, so, so that's kind of the way it was over there. And when the civil war broke out, while we were living there, we will, we were told by my dad's employer uh, at the flower business says, you got to get your family out because they, they are looking to kill you. You know, the, the, the different groups are looking to kill you because of your skin color. You need to leave. So, so that okay. was, that was kind of like um, our, our, okay, time to leave, I guess. Wow. Okay. So before we get to that, then yeah. um, what w- your friends, uh, you're going to public school and all that. I mean, what were your friends expats? Were they Liberians? What, what yeah, were so they? The pri- uh, private school I went to was a, a Catholic school in, in Monrovia. Um, I remember it was c- close to the ocean um, and it was run by uh, Lebanese uh, Catholics, uh, you know, all, all, all over the school. And uh, yeah, it was the old Catholic punishment of the rulers this thick and, <laughs> you know, getting, getting smacked on my knuckles and stuff like that. If I was, uh, if I, well, one time I was running in recess and I got spanked for that. I wasn't allowed to run. I didn't know that. <laughs> so, so well, you here, guys, you guys weren't Lebanese Christians, were you? No, no, or we were Lebanese you, you were Muslims, Muslims right? but, but, you know, like I always say, Catholicism is always the closest to Islam in terms of beliefs and, and rituals and all that, all kinds of stuff. So, so that's, that's why I always say, you know, old school, old school Testament is like old school, you know, Islam with, you know, right. fire brim and fire and everybody dies and, you know, all did, kinds of things. Did they yeah. have you do like, like catechisms and like Catholic stuff while you were there? Yeah. Or did they... yeah I mean, I was, really? I was doing, wow. yeah, I was doing the church. I was uh, doing Catholic things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, you know, because it's, it, it, it's where we were, you know, how did uh, just, how did your parents, uh, I mean, obviously they were cool with it, but I mean, what, what, what did that mean? Were they devout uh, in their Muslim faith? That yeah. They were yeah. Cool they're, with it? And, and, but, and they're still devout. And, and I think again, it's because Catholicism was so close to Islam. It wasn't that big of a deal. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah. So who are your friends? Are they all expats at that school? Is yeah, that really expats. I mean, I had African friends. I had expats, uh, Lebanese uh, individuals. We had, uh, uh, there was all kinds, actually. Um, I even learned, actually, uh, it's funny, my wife, who was in the JAG Corps, 
um, I met one of her classmates at JAG school who lived in Liberia the same time I did because his father worked in the embassy and he hmm. went also to a private school, not my private school, but he was, you know, white Irish American dude, you know, oh, wow. going to private wow. school in, in, in Liberia. So it was, it was interesting because so it was like all kinds of people in the schools, especially a private school, private Catholic school. I mean, if you can afford it, you, you know, obviously are able to right. go. And sports. Did you guys play sports? Was there a league? I mean, what, what was what was that like? Um, well, so I didn't really play much sports uh, when I was uh, at the private school because it was just like, you know, I get picked up, dropped off, picked up, you know, go straight home. Um, I mean, we had a pretty good size Lebanese uh uh, population right in Monrovia so we kind of hung out with with our kind I guess if you want to call it that okay uh, you know and and that's all we really did got you got you so how much did you feel like you got to know the Liberian people I mean uh, I got to know them a bunch you know again I, I had friends who are Liberian and and actually my uh, some of my uncles um, over the years they married African uh, women from Liberia and my great-grandfather Af- married also um uh, um, uh, a woman actually from Senegal, uh, you know, who was in Liberia. Mm-hmm. So, so I got to learn a lot of, about the culture and, and the different uh, customs and courtesies and stuff like that. And, and uh, it's kind of funny here in the U S whenever I meet a Liberian uh, citizen and I tell them, Oh yeah, I was born in Liberia. They're like, Oh bullshit. And I tell them where I lived and where I lived is Camp Johnson road. The only way you would know that that road exists is if you're actually from Monrovia. And as soon as I say that, they're like, Oh shit. Yeah. yeah okay. You were born there. <laughs> you know, you lived there. So, and they, and they probably know you and they immediately are like, Oh yeah, that's the Lebanese area. And that all makes sense to them. Right. Yeah. They yeah. don't even have to ask, are you like, yeah. are you Lebanese? Like they, it all, yeah, Camp Johnson Road, and that they just know. Yep, they just oh. know exactly. So, what was um? So, you were there from what age to what age? From when you were born to? So, from uh, I was born in eighty one to, and I left in eighty eight, eighty nine, just right at the okay. beginning of the uh, Civil War. Got you. And how does the war hit you? How does the how do you discover that you're at war and that the war is coming? Was it just that your parents are having a conversation over the dinner table and you realize, or? What, no, that, that was one, one. What was it? Yeah, it was it was the initial gunshots. Uh, I'll never forget. It was a uh, large crowd outside late at night, and gunshots started ringing out in the crowd. And I remember the crowd like a stampede running one direction. You know, I ran into the house, and then uh, wait. So the, this crowd is like right outside your house, or is yeah, it right like outside. Yeah, we we had oh. like a big apartment building that was occupied by all Lebanese, kind of like a if you think uh, condos. So each yeah. floor had a had a room. Okay. I had a living space. I mean, uh, it was four or five floors. We were on like the fourth floor uh, was ours, but it was all Lebanese. But yeah, I was outside on the veranda, just kind of overlooking. And it's a, it's a busy road, Camp Johnson Road. It's like a main road, you know, uh, mm-hmm. through La- through Monrovia. And there's always crowds out there because there's street vendors and all kinds of things. So it's, it's, okay. it's a very, very busy area. Um, and, you know, when I was outside, I was just outside to hang out, you know, playing with my toys. And, and all of a sudden, again, you, you hear the shot. And I remember people just running and uh, I ran inside. And then uh, I don't remember if this was the next day, but I remember, you know, that soldier that jumped out of the deuce and have the grenade going off and, and, you know, blowing them up. Um, and, and I don't even remember our escape out of Liberia. Um, all I remember is landing in Boston when when we left. 
Holy uh, shit. Yeah. Like we, we literally left all our stuff. My dad, my, uh, my father told me actually not too long ago. Um, we were like, yeah, I had to pick you guys up and we had to go like ASAP, you know? So, and was that a, was that overland travel? Was it a flight? What was it that you guys took? And do you remember? It was, any it was of a that? Fl- I mean, the only thing I remember is the flight, you know, okay. landing into Boston. I don't remember how we got there again. I think my mind just turned off after, oh. <laughs> after some, at some point, um, because it must've been, which I, I do understand from my dad, it was that intense for us to get out because we only had hours to leave versus days. Um, and what was happening was that Samuel Doe, the leader was being overthrown by Charles Taylor's guerrillas yep. who were Libyan trained like charles yep. taylor learned all that under Gaddafi. yeah yeah i mean it would crack so let's let's take a moment maybe like uh talk charles taylor stuff have you ever gone back and read any of the biographies on charles taylor have oh he's a, he's a madman <laughs> what what, what's amazing to me is like how he's at the center of so much shit in the 70s and 80s yep. and he's always he's like the zelly you ever see that woody allen movies yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah you know yeah. like he's like always he's always this this kind of minor character in all these different parts yeah so yeah so um so he goes i guess to uh uh what's the little uh liberal arts college of massachusetts that's uh bentley bentley yeah right? he goes to bentley goes to bentley and i i thought he i i maybe i was remembering this wrong i thought he got nailed for sexual assault there but i guess he didn't yeah he did, yeah, right? So, so well, well. So there was he. He got he got um, uh, brought up on on various charges here in, in 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 Massachusetts. I don't remember if sexual assault was one of them, but I do remember he had some criminal cases. Well, he had the embezzlement. Yes, yes, so he had, he the, had embezzlement the embezzlement. Was one because he was big, working was for Samuel one. Doe, and then yeah. he and then he like embezzles like a million dollars or something, yes. right? Yes, and then and then they go through a trial where he's defended by Ramsey Clark, who was the former. <laughs> u.s attorney general yeah like what yeah. the fuck so he, that's his defense lawyer i mean you yeah. talk about, it's so funny because when you think of like the jeffrey epstein and Ghislaine maxwell and all that shit yeah. and it's like this was sort of that except without the internet to fuel it and make everybody Pretty go much. what the fuck is going on well here? i think people just don't realize how much of an impact he had in that region unless you actually you know read some of his the history of of both the uh, Massachusetts and Liberia and the, yeah. the complex relationship he had with Samuel Doe uh, because, you know, him being out here and it, it, it was just, it, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was quite the, uh, the story with him. Well, and, and then he then escapes that he cuts his way out of the prison yes. in Massachusetts and escapes and he and all of his co-conspirators escape. Yep. And then he flees, I guess, right to Libya where he gets trained into a, into a, uh, you know, a fighter and learns yeah. like Warcraft. Yeah. And much. then, and then, but in his case, he said he was being run by the CIA and all that, which everyone says, but in his case, it, the DIA, I think came out and said, yeah, he was an asset in some way. And we can't really talk about how, but the, he claims the CIA broke him out of prison, which I don't think they did, no. but, anyway, but, <laughs> but I think it's more likely that he, that he did decide to expose that whole relationship. Oh yeah, and, all, and then and then go to fucking Gaddafi in the eighties yep. when Gaddafi was like at the height of his powers, you yeah. know, and um, and then bring that army into Liberia. So well, so yeah, so I mean the the, the army that that basically that the, that was Libyan backed for Charles Taylor was a national 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 patriotic uh, Liberian force, something like that, or a national yeah, the national patriotic front of Liberia. That was the army that that 
went in to uh, to overthrow Doe uh, in in the first well in in, in the Civil War. Uh, on the second one, I know it, sometimes they say it is the first, but Doe had his own civil war. So right, I, I always consider right. Charles Taylor to be the second one. And you uh, missed the first civil war, right? You yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't born just yet. Yeah. When the first civil but war. But your parents were unaffected by it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. 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 I mean, because I think when we went to Lebanon, I mean, when, when we moved to Liberia, I believe it was towards the end of that civil war. And, oh, okay. and you know, right. Samuel Doe by that point had power. Got you. So let me just double back to the racism thing. So when yep. when you say they didn't like people with light skin, was it the the actual people on the ground that had no, that so racism, it was the or government? The government? It, it was the government. The government. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's funny how governments work, right? It's always the government that yeah that does yeah. those things. Well, it's funny. So that reminds me of like Idi Amin in Uganda, who hated the Indians that mm-hmm. were there, who had been investing and building up Uganda. And and uh, and they didn't get along. So when he needed a scapegoat, it was like, oh, the fucking Indians. And yeah. then he'd go after them. Were you guys kind of the same? Was it kind of like, hey, anybody? Was oh, yeah. It, it, it basically it, one of one of the scapegoats for for Taylor was, uh, you know, the Lebanese that that, you know, took over the economy or ruined the economy, stuff like that. That's why that's how he was able to sort of get galvanize some of these different factions in, in Liberia to rise up uh, against not just Samuel Doe, but and again, anybody else who did not look Liberian was swept up into this. Did your family know people that stayed behind or did they ever uh, talk about that? No, they, they never really talk about that. They just talk about the, uh, I call it the great escape. You know, they, uh, the, because the, where my dad worked at the flower business is his, uh, I guess you call him like a regional manager, uh, when he told them, hey, you need to get out of here. And he, this guy, this individual called his corporate office to get my dad a visa to escape. And again, we had just hours to get that done. And my dad was granted, you know, in hours with that. And we left. So I was going to ask about that. So obviously, um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, this is a different time, but it's interesting to me with all the efforts that people have been making to get people out of Afghanistan. Um, and get have refugee status and the visas and all that. But you guys were able to pull that trigger relatively quickly, get a yeah. visa and get to Boston, Yep. which kind of begs the question, because I was going to ask if you could get to Boston that quickly, why weren't you going to Boston in the first place? Uh, you know, why, why even go to Liberia? You could have just gone to the U.S. right off the bat. Um, yeah. Was that ever a consideration, though, for your folks? Did they, Was there a reason they favored Liberia over trying to do Canada, the U S anything. Well, like that. at first it's, it, it was the money that was plentiful in Liberia, you know, okay. it was a, it was a right. booming economy, uh, you know, with my grandfather and the diamond mine. So, so yep. we had, we had a lot of different avenues for revenue uh, gotcha. versus coming to Canada or the U S gotcha. But now you didn't have a choice. So yeah. you, now you're on the plane. And what do you remember when you got to Boston? Was there Cold. culture? <laughs> Well, was, was that the culture shock? <laughs> it was, it was, it was, uh, you know, we landed in Boston in December and, uh, and here I come from African heat, you know, and I land in Boston and it was so freaking cold. We had to go, um, uh, downtown crossing. If you remember the old filings basement, uh, go down, I go down there. Okay. Yeah. But wow. there, there was an old filings basement where, uh, they used to have the winter wonderland up on the windows and you can walk down downtown crossing to watch the whole enactment of the winter wonderland. And then you go to the basement and, you know, picked up a bunch of clothes. Were you, so wait, so what was the actual, I mean, I know you're young, so I'm not trying to push you on too many details, yeah. but I mean, what was the process like? So you're not 
I mean, the immigration process, I mean, were you considered refugees at that point? Or? Yeah, yeah. I believe my, my, my dad, uh, the way he, he described it, like, like political asylum, uh, refugees, we had that status uh, when we came. So you're not held, you're not detained, and they go, no. hey, we're, we want to, they literally are like, hey, welcome to U.S., finally, yeah. basement is over there, go get yeah, closed? Pr- pretty much. It wasn't, Holy shit. Yeah, wow. we, it wasn't like we were held for several hours and questioning or anything like that. If we were questioned, uh, I, di- I didn't feel like it was a long time we sat at the airport um, because it, it was pretty much known why we came, you know, I mean, the, the civil wars all over the news, um, you know, people fleeing Le- uh, Liberia, very well known. So, so it was kind of like the U S was almost prepared to take in refugees from the war. And did you know anyone in the States? No. Well, uh, the only one I knew was uh, my uncle, uh, my uncle, my dad's side, Joe, um, he was studying in Suffolk University for to be a computer engineer. So he was the only contact we knew in Boston at so, the time. So did you, were you guys all staying with him when you first got there? Yeah, or what did you do? yeah we okay. were in like a tiny studio apartment in uh, Alston when we, uh, when we moved in. And how long did it take for your dad to find work and to kind of get everything revved up again um i know he uh, he started doing like taxi cab work and then uh, i mean it didn't take him long uh because again you know you, you get to meet people from within the community lebanese community you meet people and you know they 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 understand the uh the pain and the issues of leaving civil war because lebanon was still happening so i it didn't take him long to get work it was it was right away and what was it like i didn't <laughs> i mean now that i realize you went to catholic school what was it like to now suddenly be in a Lebanese community where you can go to a mosque and it's not, a, you're not, you know, it, it, did that matter to you or was you still too young where it was like, eh, six yeah, I was, I was, I was still other. too young. It didn't really, didn't really okay. matter to me, but I still went, it's funny. You said, I still went to Catholic school in Somerville, uh, you know, so, so my parents kind of were stuck in that mode where, you know, they still sent me to Catholic school anyways. <laughs> so, I mean, now with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, and we talked, uh, I know, on the 9-11 episode about, you know, how you uh, internalized 9-11 and what that meant to you when it happened. And when you made that choice to go, fuck, yeah, full steam ahead. This is this is a fight worth having. How much of that do you think was based in the fact that you were always Muslim, but you were very ecumenical in your upbringing? So there wasn't really an us versus them kind of mindset that had ever been ingrained into you how much do you think that played a role in your decision making so the decision making and i mean played a huge role and and just one of the one of the reasons i i i, I went in was to kind of show also that there are good muslims not just bad you know the way yeah. kind of the media started spinning it and uh and on top of that you know i i wanted to go and actually fight you know uh to protect what we had here, you know, in America, because America gave us that ability, you know, to survive the civil wars. And we became, you know, successful. My dad, you know, the typical story of having three, four jobs at once and then growing out of it and getting his own business and stuff like that. You know, it's like the American dream story uh, that we had. And, and, you know, part of me also wanted to protect that, you know, for everybody else that, that never experienced it. Yeah. It wasn't just ideological, it was personal. It was the yeah. fact that this is a personal journey. I meant to ask, what happened to your grandfather? Did he leave also with you guys? Yeah, well, oh yeah, we all abandoned, abandoned okay. ship. Right, Everybody right. abandoned. Yeah, whether they went back to Lebanon, Liberia, back to uh I'm I'm sorry, uh, Canada, the Europe, uh, everyone just left. 
And did your family continue to go back on a semi-regular basis to Lebanon? Lebanon, yeah. Um, okay. they, they, they would uh, For a while, we didn't go because, again, we didn't have really money to, to be able to travel uh, back then uh, to go to Lebanon. But when we were finally financially able to, uh, yeah, kind of, you know, almost every year to every other year, uh, my family would go. I actually, the last time I've been there was 2003 uh, in Lebanon. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? Why so uh, long? Um, one, I mean, just the wars in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. that that you know, at that time, uh, I got deployed to Iraq, and then uh, you know, just life, work, you know, again, going up in the ranks as as a cop and everything, and 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 on top of that, the instability of Lebanon, knowing what it is, it's like you know, makes me a little more wary to go over there. It's like you know too much. Yeah, you go over there, it's like oh shit, I'm acutely yeah. aware of what's going on. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Do okay. your folks still go back? Yeah, my folks go back. Yeah, my dad's actually building a house there, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I don't know why, but <laughs> it's not like it's getting any better over there." It is do they still have extended family over yeah. there? So I there's mean, a my, reason. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my village where where we live uh, down south, there's a uh, it's like over a thousand uh, thousand kafels. Uh, wow. we we've been there for generations. Wow, now, you're talking Holy you're shit. talking thousands of years of us living there. I mean. Uh, Everybody, I think, at some point gets really curious about their own genealogy and all that. Have you ever hit that moment where you're like, all right, what the fuck is up with the Cafels in Southern Lebanon? Like, like, let's dev this out. Like, how have you guys survived? How are you making do? Is it just like, are they all expats that just come back to Lebanon on a semi-regular basis? Or are some of them actually permanently living in Lebanon? How do they survive? Like, that's just yeah. an interesting so, dynamic. So my my great grandfather talking to my uncle, I guess uh, there's my uncle telling me the story. My uncle actually asked him, "What's our origin? Like, why were we in Lebanon forever? Like, you know, since right. the beginning of since the dawn of time? Or uh, no? I guess my great grandfather said that originally our ancestors were from Germania, uh, fighting the Romans back in the day, and we ended up migrating into uh like uh phoenicia and you know it was like the old school uh oh, sure. times yeah so so he the way he says like oh we used to be nazis and my uncle's like what what do you mean nazis and you know <laughs> then he goes into, oh no we, you know germania blah 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 and and oh. it was like oh all right so that's that's kind of what i learned my family early on history was you know originally from germania so it was kind of the Roman Empire that drove you guys, that kind of encompassed you guys, and then it was easy for you to get east. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit, man. Yeah. Boy, so it a, goes way back. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not gonna pop up on like ancestry.com. Oh no, that's I'm not actually, gonna be a fucking yeah. <laughs> like I laugh at the ancestry.com one time. I actually went to research just you know my name, and it was like, yeah, nothing. Like, oh my god, yeah, because it's thousands of years old. You're not gonna yeah, be able yeah, to get yeah. I mean, I've I've tried in the past to kind of do this family tree type thing. It is yeah. so complicated. And okay. so like, <laughs> again, you got thousands of years of history in my family. So we should probably cover, um, we don't have to, we don't have to dive too deep on it, but since I referenced it, it'd probably be good for people to know kind of what you thought uh, again on nine 11, just since that's obviously a key pivot point that sent you in the military and, and law enforcement and everything else kind of opens up the warrior spirit. Cause at that point, if I remember right, like you weren't thinking of the military, you weren't thinking of law no. enforcement, like you were in a totally different direction. So 9-11 kind of weaponized you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it definitely did. It definitely, uh, you know, not just 9-11, even going to war, you know, woke up that warrior spirit within that has always been there, but hasn't been tested. 
right? You know, whether, um, you know, the only time I ever really got tested in it was whether I got into a fight at school or, you know, or some other things that happened in my life. But, but that was, you know, it was war that really tested it and brought it out. Yeah. What was that like all of a sudden going from being the light skinned asshole to now you're the dark skinned asshole, right? <laughs> when you show up in the U.S. or was yeah. that what it was when you showed up in the U.S.? Was a bunch of Irish kids making fun of you? Like, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I yeah. still dealt with it. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, people would think I'm Puerto Rican or Mexican or, right. you know, everything right. else other than Lebanese. And you'd get the, you know, racial slurs thrown at you, whether, you know, they think you're black or or or, or Spanish, you know. So. So, yeah, I, I dealt with that growing up. How I, I, I'm not a Boston guy, but it seems to me like that's part and parcel of growing up in Boston. Like yeah. if you're Italian, you were going to get something thrown at you. If you're Irish, you get something. If you're going to be anything like that's almost like the pecking order of just how Boston is. Is that pretty right? Much. Yeah, pretty okay. much. I mean, Boston, uh, the way Boston is, it's, it's funny is it's the way yeah, I mean, I love Boston and love, you know, where, where I'm at. It's just it's one of those things that once you're able to get into that circle, they love you for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, one of those yeah, things uh, yeah. where, you know, uh, me, you know, my, my circle of friends were, were so tight, you know, and, and you can't break through that. And that's just the way that Boston dynamic is that resilience that we have because we survived so many different things uh, in our lives uh, being from Boston. Uh, this is probably an unfair comparison, but what, what felt worse, the kind of government instituted discrimination in Liberia or the social discrimination in the U.S. So, and the social discrimination was a lot more. Uh, you see it a lot more. Sure. In, in in Liberia, it wasn't that you know socially you saw it. It was more on the government's end that you saw. Over here, it's like it was. It was more of the opposite. Over here, it's like the people showed the racism. Yeah, there was racism within the government, but you don't see it as much. But the people made it vocal here. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. I think that's really interesting to, yeah, all the way that plays out where it's like when the government's instituting racism, you kind of, it doesn't affect you as much because kind of the, the fault lines are almost set. Yeah. I take it back. It affects you as much, but it's, you don't see it. So it's almost like, it's just, oh yeah, this is just how it is. And as yeah. a result, you just kind of function within those lines, yeah. but trying to, trying to get everybody equal and getting along is a messy business. It and is. that's where like everybody runs into each other and you get that friction and all. Yeah. That's fucking interesting. Um, so we've kind of covered the, the latter part of the I'm in Cafel story on other episodes, but I feel like people that haven't heard those um, are going to want to kind of hear your full evolution. So let's just talk about um, that transition story out of the military. Cause I think that's one, I know you and I've talked about it, but I can't remember if we've done that on air. So to tell people about how you got out of the army, because you, once you were in the army, I'll just tee it up for you. You were thinking this was a career. You were prepared to go SF. Yep. You were prepared to do all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And then what happens? So what, what happens is, uh, is you know, back in 2008, um, I was getting ready to move again back to Iraq and, uh, and I ended up getting med boarded. So it, it was because again, you go to war, you know, I hurt my back, hurt my leg. I mean, uh, I don't know any combat vet that doesn't have some sort of form of, uh, <laughs> injuries. Um, but, um, what I was doing is I was taking, um, uh, you know, like uh, Tylenol with codeine, ibuprofen codeine type, 
type medication just to ease the pain in my back. And uh, the, you know, when you're going through a mob, you know, they're asking, Hey, what medications do you take? You know, that stuff. And, and at the time I was, uh, you know, I, uh, I was recommended for the med board and the med board ended up uh, discharging me from the uh, military. So I I wasn't too happy in the way I left, you know, it wasn't like my decision to leave. Yeah. What, what did that psychologically, I mean, what was the, uh, what was the residual on that? Did you find that you were, did you go into depression? Did you find yourself moping around a little bit? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you, 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 that, that, that's, you know, for any of us in, in that sort of business, it, it becomes like your identity, especially the sacrifices that you saw witnessed, you know, the, uh, the, the pains of, of losing friends to war or suicide, you know, stuff like that, where you, you, you know, even the triumphs that you had in the military, whether, you know, like I got the BPT badge a couple of times, you know, whoop de doo you know, right, but, right, right. but it was, it's like, you know, you build this persona of yours, um, you know, but, but then to realize that in the end, the army just, which is the cold hard fact, I'm just another number, no matter how good of a soldier I am or, or whatever, you're still a number to the army that they can, you know, that, that you're expendable. You can either, they can either get rid of you or do whatever. And, and that really hit me hard because, you know, I had a, uh, I had a new squad. I was like training them up and, you know, bringing these guys up only to be told that no, you're not going overseas with them. You know, I mean, when I think of how you exited the army, I've thought about this a bit since you and I talked about it offline. Um, I was like, your story is a true example of the armies and of the military in general's inability to manage talent correctly. Cause here you are language skills, cultural background, Lebanese, you, you could easily not fit the American profile very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you've gone on to have a successful law enforcement career. So clearly physically you were able to do the job and cope and figure out the ways to get around your injuries and solve them and improve and all that. And and I, I, I look at you and I go, the army really missed an awful lot you know, it, because they're looking at it as, as though we're all interchangeable parts of aluminum siding, when yeah. in fact you bring a lot to the table that others don't have. And that would have been a huge value added, I think, in a lot of respects. And so I think, you know, especially when my first deployment, when I was, when I was in Iraq and, and speaking Arabic and everything, I think that's when it sort of hit me where I was like, holy shit, my word is kind of law in this region, so to speak, um, you know, because what I say shaped operations, you know, yeah. what, what I did shaped uh, missions, you know, and, and to know that, that I had that sort of impact, one felt good because I, I knew I was providing the correct intel uh, to various units in the area that were operating, whether it was SF or uh, human intel or, or civil affairs, whatever, I had, you know, much I had a lot more intel than the their, the S2 would ever dream of getting, right, you right. know, because I was always out there, uh, you know, I mean, over 40,000 miles of combat patrols I did in Iraq. That's a lot of talking to people. That's a lot of gathering intel. That's a lot of uh, developing assets, you know, and it was sort of kind of like my own way of doing ASO, you know, just yeah. cultivating the information and, and, you know, getting the right assets in place to, to be able to have a successful time out there. So for that, to me for the army to just be like ah eh, oh well you know we'll, we'll find another which it's like really you're not gonna yeah. find another guy yeah you, you, <laughs> that, that should and 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 to be fair i mean that's true of everybody 
you yeah. know, the, the individual qualities of a person just don't grow on trees. You can't replicate people, you know, sure. and, and in your case, that stands out more than most. Did you ever get tapped as like, hey, dude, come out with us and just do some linguist work for us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I've gone out with various units. Yeah. yeah. Uh, various, uh, whether they're uh, SF or human intel or or anything. Actually, I remember one time, uh, I believe it was an SF group that came to the battalion talk to talk to me literally about the intel that I have. And because uh, they were, you know, we had the big plot map, you know, right in front of us. And yeah. I was just going over all the uh, different factions that I knew of and who's friendly to the U.S. and who's not and stuff like that. And I remember the uh, commander was was left scratching his head was like well we we did not get any of this intel from yeah, our s2s yeah yeah that well this is more up here you know yeah. on the ground of, of what i've learned and and to them also having an american soldier who not only can talk but i can also oh, fight you know if if needed well and and you're credible yeah you know you're credible and you're trained in and, and it's not even i mean the 09 lima program was well-intentioned and good and all that but when somebody comes into the military purely for the express purpose of being a linguist uh, or a translator, you know, that's um, doesn't always end up with the soldier first mentality and to have somebody yeah. that's already thinking like a soldier that yeah. has that ability. Yeah. That's a real value added. What was uh remind you were, you were field artillery, weren't you? Yeah. What was your, what was your MOS? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was the 13 Bravo. So, so field artillery, um, but God, that's a fucking waste. Yeah. yeah. I, didn't do anything. A, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, having gone to basic at Fort Sill, I mean, God, that seems like a really bad fit for you. But anyway, uh, <laughs> well, you can thank recruiters, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And then who are you with? Who are you assigned to? So I was assigned uh, the field artillery unit I was assigned to was the uh, 102nd Field Artillery, and they were uh, attached eventually to the 18th MP Brigade when we deployed overseas. Okay. Were they a reserve unit or guard unit or were they active or uh, the 18th MP or the you guys. 102nd? Oh, oh, the 102nd. Were no, you? they were, they were a guard unit that, that okay. I got to got and, uh, and then went over uh, and under the 18th MP brigade. Okay. Got it. So yeah. What were you generally doing? Was it, um, convoy stuff was it what did you find yourself doing for the most so part? over in iraq what we did was uh, so our unit was tasked with taking over the detention center on our base oh, um, you. you know okay. dealing with the uh, with you know detainee prisoners or pow's or whatever uh, that we had over there but uh, but i did not stay in that mission very long uh, it was like maybe two weeks in country and then i got pulled right out of my unit and placed right into the the battalion and the only one i answered to was the battalion commander well okay that's something why yeah. why what, what because of who you were because of what you could bring to the fight yeah okay. because right. uh i remember battalion commander i mean i'm still dear dear friends with him to this day uh mm -hmm. me and him really uh really have quite the uh brotherly bond that we have uh because you know been through shit together and, and stuff like that but he uh it was just one day, you know, doing what he, battalion commander does, walks around, getting to know people, you know, getting to know his NCOs, his soldiers, you know, like any good uh, leader would do. Mm -hmm. uh, just walked around and introduced himself to me. And I said, you know, at the time I was a E5 sergeant and said, hey, how you doing, Sergeant Caffell? And he's like, ah, so what, what, what's your job? What do you do here? So, well, I, uh, I'm assigned to the 102nd, so we have the, uh, you know, the detention center. And he said, oh, what? you know, he was just trying to get to know me, family, yeah, friends, whatever, yeah. whatever. And, you know, we got into me speaking Arabic. And he said, oh, you speak Arabic? I said, yeah. Fluently, yeah. 
And then he looked at the command sergeant major, said, looks at me. He's like, all right, we'll, we'll, we're going to be talking soon. So sure enough, a week later, I got plucked and assigned directly to him. And so did you work for him like as a linguist, as a. Yeah. Holy shit. So, so, wow. so I had, I had two jobs with him, his bodyguard and literally I was his bodyguard and his uh, linguist. So I had two wow. jobs. So, wow. you know, there, there've been a couple hairy times where I've stopped uh, Iraqis uh, from approaching him because I, I just saw something I didn't like and, you know, yelling at them in Arabic in full battle rattle kind of, it kind of threw them off because yeah, they, they, they don't see that at all so so it uh, they they realized that it's serious business when i was talking so when you ended up having that bad day where you you went right and the other guy went left and ended up getting hit that wasn't when you were helping the bc out was it that really? was that was during that really time. yeah Holy that shit. during that whole time yep he must have fucking loved you as a bodyguard you had the spidey <laughs> sense to go the right way Holy yeah shit. Yeah, that was that was with the battalion commander. That was uh, again, it was a very very intense day, and then we've had many, but that was probably again being the worst that it is, is because of that last minute decision yeah, that, yeah, that was yeah. made, or last second decision actually that was made. So let's fast forward then. So when when you get med boarded out, what was the uh, what was the turnaround time before you started looking to law enforcement and started to get yourself? So actually, the, during during my time, I was I was looking into law enforcement already. So I was okay. sort of putting applications out there, you know, putting stuff together, and uh, and then you know uh, get med boarded. I was like, you know what, whatever, you know, I'm, I'll be a cop, and and that's it. And at the time, I got you know, oh fuck, fuck the military, fuck the army, you know, all yeah. all, that, all those yeah. thoughts went through because it was like you know, what the hell, you know, all, all this that I did. And, you know, when I was over there yet, they're like, yeah, whatever. So that, that was kind of the feeling I had. How did, how did it feel to go through the police Academy? Was it, what, did it feel like a step forward? Did it feel like a step back? Did it feel like, like, were you still kind of having regrets about missing the military? And it was like, yeah, this is okay, but I really should be over there. Or to feel like, oh no, hell, I'm in my groove. This actually might all work out for the best. Yeah, so I, w- I mean, I was split. I definitely wanted to be with my guys. I definitely wanted to be deployed again. Um, that was that was a huge, huge part of me. Really wanted to go back over, and it wasn't because I wanted to go to war, but it was just because I wanted to be with my guys. Like you know, uh, to to especially me being the combat vet. Uh, I had I had guys that never been to combat. You know, you got the brand new privates who graduated basic have no idea what they're in store for. Right. And and I felt me as a as the veteran, you know, combat veteran in the in the uh, in the squad, um, I could really guide them, and I was, you know, guiding them uh, throughout our entire mob uh, time. You know, getting ready to go, and and so when when I became a cop. I sort of saw a little bit of that brotherhood again, you know, where we were, uh, you know, we're all one squad working sectors, doing the, doing what we do. So it, it kind of fulfilled some of that, uh, need, uh purpose. I actually gave me a purpose, right. It also gave yeah. me a purpose. So it, it gave me that purpose I was looking for again. How long did it take, uh, on the job before you started to think of doing a podcast? Oh, you're talking uh, maybe uh, by maybe my 14th, 15th year on, really? on the job. Yeah, it was oh, a no lot shit. later. Yeah, it was oh, a wow. lot later. I it sort of sort of decided it actually after you know just seeing the way the job was going downhill. You know, in terms of 
whether politically getting sabotaged or or the hiring process being sabotaged by uh, by political figures and stuff like that. So I, I and training budgets being decreased, and I saw that downward angle uh, coming fast. And and like I always say in my podcast, this is the result. What you're getting is a result of these movements that kept happening. Yeah. yeah. You know, and now now this is something that we're we're all dealing with. You know, I mean, this is one thing where obviously credibility and time in makes a huge difference. You hadn't just been on the force for five years and decided that you knew it all. It was like, Hey, I'm 14 years, whatever, 14, 15 years into this. And now like I got pretty good dossier of what the fuck is going on in my brain. And um, I would say of all the criticisms of police departments writ large, the, the lack of training is probably the most valid criticism. And I think you've, I know you've talked about that a whole bunch before, um, do you still feel that way? Do you feel like if you were, you know, the Pope and could make one colossal global change to all police departments, it would be like, yeah, increase training budgets, get, oh, get training better, get, yeah. get training better because with, with better training, you get better cops. I mean, I've, I've seen and heard of police departments across the country where, uh, certain States, uh, just really cut units in half. And it's like, these are very critical strategic units for police departments, whether, uh, you know, they're more doing uh, the community service aspect or the UW type missions out mm-hmm. there, um, or even the uh, the direct action type stuff where, you know, they're, they're hitting strategic targets purposely knowing that this individual is a very bad dude or not. But when you cut these units in half or dissolve them, well, now, you know, a lot of these players are left unchecked. Do you feel a lot more protected now that you're in kind of more of a, uh, like I'll, I might just use the military, more of a direct action kind of unit than if you were on patrol or if you were like, you know, or do you feel like, hey, I, I'm not going to be, if I'm, if I'm directed at a target, it's something that's already been vetted, it's already been approved, it's gotten all the hominem dominums, blessings, signing offs, all the way up and down the chain. I've, there's so many other heads that are going to roll before they get to me. Yeah. I can go in and just focus and do my shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, you you know, I get, I do the target packages and all that stuff and, and we, we know who we're after. It's, it's a little different with, you know, whether it's SWAT or, or my unit or unit like, you know, gang units, narc units, uh, we, we have specific targets that we go after, you know, and these targets, like you said, vetted or, you know, they're, they're really bad individuals that we need to go get. And those direct action missions are very easily justified versus, you know, the patrol guys, unfortunately patrol, um, they're, they've lost their touch in terms of doing the job, being proactive, you know, with me, I can, I can go into patrol and hunt and I know what I'm looking for and I'll build the case. No problem. You know, from the ground up where I, I pull a car over and end up getting guns, drugs, or what have you, I can build all that up. But what's happening now is with, with patrol officers, because they don't feel protected, they're not going to do it. You know, because when 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 big politicians or big DAs are saying we're going to prosecute every cop that does, you know, yeah, sneezes course. wrong, of yeah. you're not going to get anyone to do anything. And and these younger cops that are coming up now are not re- are not learning the job. So I know you said that you you you're still going after it the same way. You're still leading with your chin. You feel like you your mindset is, you know, very similar to how it was before the craziness started. But if you had a different job and you were on patrol and going out there, um, 
realistically, a, a two-part question. One, would you still do it the same? And B, how would that be working out for you, do you think, right now? So if, if I was to be the same kind of guy I was seven, 10 years ago, whatever, same cop 10 years ago, working in today's environment as a cop in patrol, um, it would be a lot more uh, like, like I know a lot of very good proactive cops uh, on patrol that are still doing the work, but they know they're walking on eggshells, right? They, they know they're, they, they got to toe the line very, very closely versus, you know, doing some, uh, a couple unconventional methods to get there. Uh, but, but now they're, they're very towing the line, um, which I'm not saying they're doing anything illegal when they go unconventional, but now it's, you get a ticket. Now it's, you're going to get, you get arrested. It's no longer that discretion anymore. Now it's more of a CYA, right? Uh, You know, so it's like, you know, two brothers were fighting that happens all the time. Well, now we got to arrest them anyways for domestic, you know, charges because you know what, I'm not, it's not going to come back on me that I let them go and they end up, you know, doing something else or whatever. So it, it's turned that individual into, discretion isn't there. exactly You're not allowed that be an individual. And make those no, decisions. not, not anymore. Yeah. It, it's become like, you know, everyone gets tickets, everyone gets, you know, arrested or most get arrested. I shouldn't say everyone most get arrested. Um, I know like at my police department, uh, you know, the, the shift commanders and, and the bosses are getting a lot better in being like, Hey, you know, you have discretion, like, think about it, you know, and, but I know other, other places aren't like that. They're just like, you're going to toe the line. You're going to rest when you have to, and you're going to give tickets when you have to, other than that, whatever, you know, sit back and relax. Yeah. I mean, what's the, uh, if you were out there, what would be, what would be your appetite for use of force? Would it be the kind of thing where you would, would there be any speed bump in your mind going, oh, wait, hold on. Don't go hands on just yet. Uh, you know, yes, it's justified. Yes, this is the right time, but the optics aren't right. Or there's something, or I'm just not feeling it. I'm feeling like these people won't get my back. Even the partners I'm with may not jump in. Like, it, like is, would there be more speed bumps in your mind that would stop you from doing what um, the right thing is? For me personally, not, not so much. Um, unfortunately, we've had officers get killed that we think it's those speed bumps that stop them from doing what they have to do. Um, you know, big example is, is I don't know if you ever saw the body cam footage of Oklahoma City uh, of the officer recently who no. a guy pointed a gun at him several times and the officer didn't react as he should and ended up, uh, it was it was really bad. I'll, I'll send it to you offline so you can take a look at it. But but that's what was created. It was, you know, this this created the speed bumps in people. Like with me, when it comes to use of force, if I have to use force, well, it's because a through Z didn't work for me, you know, right. to calm this right. dude down. And now, you know what, it is what it is, you know? So, so, I mean, for example, we, we recently had to do a uh, warrant service. Someone had an arrest warrant and that individual wasn't going quietly. And and we did what we had to do. No matter, you know, it was like, it is what it is, you know, right. Right. if, if somebody's going to end up throwing hands, then it is, you know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll do what I have to do. When was the last time, if ever, that you've had uh, cell phones come up while you're in the middle of your job? And oh, I've, had a, I've had a few times, even, even, yeah. even prior to uh, Ferguson and all that. I mean, I've had video cameras, um, which I don't care. I'm like, hey, make sure you get my good side, you know, like really? yeah. whatever. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get a rise out of me. Um, I think that's the fault of some uh, some officers that allow it to get to them. I, I don't really care. Mm. 
to me, to me, in yeah. this day and age with technology, you're on camera anywhere you go. Right. Well, yeah. what what about if did you, would they also be yelling at you, like trying to say, "Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what the fuck? Hey, why are you doing that?" Yeah, like, yeah you know, you I get, get that. that but yeah. but you know, drawing out the noise, do my job. Uh, yeah. You know, if I make an arrest, I make an arrest, and if I don't, I don't. But but again, though, in in my current position i'm you know it's more strategic targets that i'm going after yeah, i'm not yeah. you know so uh, patrol uh, patrol level yeah you see it a lot more with the patrol officers when they pull cars over and, and do whatever but in, in my case not as much yeah yeah <sighs> hell of a life man <laughs> yeah it's, it's incredible it's incredible because it really it it spans i mean jesus christ we've spanned geopolitics to civil wars <laughs> multiple civil wars, multiple non-civil wars, and now law enforcement. I mean, dude, it's, it's, it's an action-packed life. What's the end game? When do you, when do you wrap that up or what, what's the hopes and dreams going forward for the next 20 years? So it kind of, you know, so I, I've, I've had a, a, a few friends, uh, whether, you know, who, who are or were SF um, and, and military or law enforcement in different capacities, and in the end, I think I look what I what I've kind of learned or what I want to do uh, in the future is kind of pass on that knowledge that I've had to the younger cops coming up or younger military coming up, um, because that knowledge uh, never really gets passed. You know, uh, it, it just kind of it, it will go with me to the grave. You know, my knowledge and experiences will go with me to the grave. But what use would that experience be if I don't share it? Yeah. You know, maybe it might save somebody's life one day, or maybe, you know, it would give somebody uh, that moment of pause to think twice or or something, you know, or, or even not think twice. And if you see a threat, you take care of it, you know? So what's the best mechanism to get that knowledge out? Do you think it'll be the podcast for, the near and far future. Yeah, the the podcast. I mean, has been doing really well. Um, you know, we get emails all the time of people, uh, one who aren't in the profession of military or or uh, law enforcement, to get a real kind of POV version of what it actually is and what it looks like. And and that's I think that's been the real uh, drive in when I started the podcast was I was going to be blunt and this is the way it is, you know, and, and I even do it in, 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 on my job where some people might think, Oh, it might be easy for me to get a search warrant for something. And I say, no, it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, there's, there's different things I need to do, but, but I think having that dose of reality that people uh, like is, is what, you know, with, with my podcast is what's really uh, driving that. And on, on the training side, you know, uh, set myself up to be a, some sort of consultant or something for uh, for a company for training and, and stuff like that. I mean, it, you know, with, with the amount of experiences from, you know, private sector to, to law, the military, to law enforcement, to, you know, language and culture and stuff, it's, it's a whole gamut of experiences that I can pass on. Yeah, it seems like the the other benefit of the podcast, though, is that civilians can listen to it. Yeah, and it's not just a closed lecture for the for Leos, because I think I think there does have to be some needle moving in public consciousness, and and it'll move, but it might move because there's a huge spike in crime, or it might move because of they watch something on TV. Yeah. It's one thing if they can actually hear from the horse's mouth directly. And kind of hear the firsthand experiences. I think there's no substitute for that. Well, that, that's what I always say. I say to people like, you know, if you want to ask what's really happening, ask the guys on the ground. Don't ask yeah. the uh, guys sitting in the third, second, third floor of a building because they they don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, 
And, and that, that's true for everything. And it drives me nuts. I, I, don't, I don't know if you ever get this question, but I've had a lot of times where uh, I, I, people ask me this when they, I was like, yeah, I just got out of the military. They're like, oh yeah. What rank were you? Like, <laughs> Motherfucker. Yeah. Like, like, go fuck yourself. Like, like you want to judge that based off, right? Like, and, yeah. and that sounds like a self-defensive insecure answer, but it's like, so, you know, I, I humor them and all that, but I'm like, I'm like, you're looking at the wrong end of this fucking steak, man. Like this, this is not, this is not how you get a look at what the value is that somebody had or, or what their experience and their, and their, and their level is. It's like, you understand like the higher up you go, the less in touch you are. And the more you're like, you're managerial, you don't actually know the nitty gritty of the job, but people that haven't been in that life kind of don't track that, you know? So, I mean, we recently had a uh, SWAT uh, assessment. Uh, come up, you know, where we had a couple candidates looking to become SWAT. So my SWAT team is a regional SWAT team. We have, you know, f- over 50 cities and towns uh, cops that represent. So we have about 50 operators in the in the in the uh, SWAT team from all over. So every year we do a push for recruitment, get a couple because you know guys retire or injured or whatever. Um, but uh, these two candidates, night and day, uh, one of them, his introduction to us was his rank. Yeah. And that's about it, his rank and where he works. And that's about it, where the other guy was more, this is who I am. This is what I do. So guy like that with rank, we, we already like, oh, really? So you're going to throw your rank out there right, right away. You know, that's your first, yeah. that's your first thing versus, you know, you know how it is like when you're on a team, that team needs to trust you. So they need to know every little thing about you. It's not about your rank. It's not about, you know, what department you work for or whatever. No, it's about who you are. Because that's what we're assessing. We're not yeah. assessing your rank. So it's funny you say that because, yeah, that that does, you know, oh, you're in the military. What's your rank? Well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, and let me just say, it. I, I'm not ashamed that that I left as an E6. I, 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 let me just mm-hmm. be clear, because now I'm thinking people are going to go, oh, what? You fucking get busted down to E2 or something. Really embarrassed <laughs> about it. I'm like, no, no, like I'm, I was fine with it. But it's just um, to it, it to use that as the metric of your value or of your knowledge is. Um, it's funny, you know, I was actually just meeting with a uh, a guy the other day um, who's a, a town supervisor, you know, like essentially mayor of the town. And uh, and he's a Navy reservist. And he's like, yeah, he's like, um, you know, uh, I really like being hands on with stuff. So he didn't go in as an officer. And he's like, yeah, I'm, you know, whatever. Like, I don't know what he is, but he's probably like he's only been in for a couple of years. He's probably like an E4 or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's like. But he's like, yeah, I just, I really wanted to learn the job. I didn't really want, he's like, I do enough managerial stuff in my day job. I really just wanted to like actually learn something and actually have a, a, a skill. Yeah. And, and I think that probably applies throughout the military law enforcement spectrum that um, not to say you don't need good officers or, or need good people in charge hundred percent do. And I'm not trying to belittle that contribution either, but, um, but yeah, for the uh, uninitiated civilian you know, that's usually not the best metric to, to judge somebody or, or, you know, yeah. determine what, what weight you want to put on their opinions or their experience. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I always say leadership don't necessarily have stripes, you know, right. or, or, right. or, or bars, you know, uh, uh, leadership is found right within the organization. You don't even have to look that far. So our, our, when I was in, in my previous life as a firefighter, uh, we always, I don't know if you guys use this in the, in the police department as well, but uh, we had, you know, the acronym for chaos, you know, chief has arrived on scene, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, so give me your definition, especially for, for law enforcement. What do you need? Like, what do you need 
uh, in police leadership. I, I imagine there's a lot of overlap in the same qualities that you'd want in a good military leader, yeah. but it seems like there's a lot of other considerations because it is a more political job, even than the military leadership. So, yeah. so what kind of stuff, like if you had to make a, a hit list, like what would you look for? If somebody's a town trying to pick a police chief, what do they need to be focused on? So it's, it's funny, one, of, one of my close friends, he's actually a, a deputy chief at my job. And, and he is kind of like, to me, is that embodiment of what you want in a leader. Uh, you know, he's the second in command of the whole police department, but with him, um, he was uh, an Afghanistan war vet, right? Back in the day uh, when the war force broke out uh, back in 2001, I believe his unit was first to mob. Uh, he was in an MP unit and he was first to mob to go with SF to be force protection for them on their bases and mm. r- ran missions with them and stuff like that. But um, he, so he, he was military combat vet, came up, became a cop. Um, but with him, he worked all the uh, jobs in the police department, essentially. Yeah. You know, he was patrolled. He did, uh, 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 plainclothes work like I'm doing. He, uh, he does, um, he went to detectives as he's rising through the ranks, you know, investigated some major homicides, stuff like that. And then, you know, eventually became deputy chief. So he has that perfect balance of it all where diversity of experience, exactly. The diversity of experiences that he brings to the job, that is very different than your typical police leader that took a bunch of tests to rise quick, but never did any of the jobs. And now it's writing policies based on whatever, you know, versus, versus deriving and devising certain policies and, and ideas or whatever based on their experiences versus what they read in a book. Well, that makes a ton of sense, I yeah. guess on the flip and I'll, I'll, I'll just, drill down into the negative a little bit more. Can you give an example of some red flags that you would see if you were, you know, head of a town council trying to pick a new police chief, what red flags would stand out to you that you go, Whoa, I want to, I either want to dig into this a little bit more and see if I can mitigate this red flag, or I want to go, this is an automatic no for me. Any, any any leader that had that comes off as this authoritarian type, is never the one you want. Uh, I've dealt with those over the course of my uh, uh, childhood, adulthood, you know, whether it's through military, law enforcement, you know, I've seen those types of leaders and and they can drive an entire department to the ground in terms of morale and, and all of that because they rule with that iron fist. They rule through fear. And, and you know, and to anyone who's picking a police chief or a police leader or future police leader, those are the things I look for and look at. You know, I, I, that's kind of like the, you know, when we do the SWAT assessments, that's what we, what we, those red flags are like, you know, where, Hey, you know, like the guy who, you know, brought up his rank right away, uh, would tell, told us during the assessment, he's like, Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm the asshole in, in, in the shift. Like really, you know? So, so it's like, that's not what we want. You know, well, you need, you yeah. need a leader who, who employs the talent underneath them versus, getting jealous because some cop came up with a better idea. And now you got to make it your idea, you know? And, and that's, that's the difference where like, you know, my, uh, the deputy chief I work for now, he, you know, he was my, uh, my boss for a while uh, in policing through plainclothes detectives. Uh, so me and him kind of came up together, uh, so to speak. And with him though, 
his his leadership style is the type that he takes in all the info. You know, if if you have an idea, if someone else has an idea or whatever, and he likes it, every, let's do it. You know what I mean? So yeah, it it, yeah. it you know it's not like yeah, this, this is how we're going to do it. And that's the final say. He was always like, hey, guys, this is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you guys think? And then we'll go back and forth, you know, brainstorming. So to me, what would be the most dangerous uh, iteration of that personality type is the kiss up, kick down type. Yeah. Where it's tough to even tell that they're an authoritarian because they're too busy kissing your ass <laughs> because you're in the hiring process or whatever. And yeah. then you go, oh, shit, he's not a nice guy that likes to listen. He's actually this. Is there any tells to that? Is there anything in your experience where you're like, hey, you know something? If you say this, or if this is how you think of this, or if your answer to this question is like this, is there anything like that where you're like, yeah, these are good tells? So I don't like the typical questions on an interview board. I hate them. They're so like, everyone knows how to answer them, right? You know, if, if you know, the typical questions, if you see your partner do take a pack of gum and put them in his pocket, what will you do? Well, it's like, okay, I'll give you the cookie cutter answer that you want to hear versus actually uh, like run it like a SWOT assessment where it, the questions relate to you personally. I don't care about your job or what you do, what, what, who are you as a, as an individual? Because when, when you really dig and it takes a while because these types of questions uh, have to come up organically. So it's not your 15 minute. I got three, you know, you got three questions, you have 15 minutes to answer them and that's it. I I've always hated those because it's yeah. like, uh, all right, here we go. You know, right. the, the same old, same old questions to me, the question should be about who that individual is as a person. That's how you'll know what they're going to be like in life. They can try to cookie cut your, the answer as much as they can, but then you'll start to realize the bullshit that's coming out of their mouths. You can tell right away versus asking those mandatory questions on, yeah. on an interview board, you know, and, yeah. and that's the way I I've gone about it. Um, you know, whether it's through hiring panels at my police department or uh, doing background investigations on, on officers, stuff like that. I want to get to know the officer, not yeah. uh, the individual who wants to become a cop, not what, how he works in the workforce. Yeah, that's important, but workforce and the individual are two different things, you know, on, on how, how they are. Um, and, and if you're fortunate enough to realize that, Hey, this, this is actually not going to be a good fit, then you don't have to uh, bring them on, you know, same thing. Like with my SWAT assessment, we knew this guy wasn't going to be a good fit, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, yeah. into the assessment, yeah. we're like, yeah, no, it's not going to work out. So the, the, I, I know you're being super generous with your time, so I don't want to take the no entire worries. Saturday, but I, but there's a, um, I do want to pick your brain about some of the dynamics that are different between a big city and a small town police department. And I'm going to preface this with my own biases. So I, um, I said growing up in New York city in the eighties, like I, I used to look out the window every time I heard, police sirens. I loved seeing cop cars going down. I, those old blue and white NYPD cars. I was like, that's fucking badass. I love that stuff. Uh, I'd tear up in the first, like oh, the opening scene of Hill street blues yeah, just yeah, the theme yeah. song would get me going. Like <laughs> I love that shit. And, and when we had, we, uh, there was one time when, um, Al Sharpton's national action network ended up, uh, holding a protest and 
some of their members actually assaulted a construction crew that was working on our building that my dad, who is the building manager, had hired and all that, ended up putting people in the hospital. We ended up getting our own NYPD, uh, you know, patrol guy assigned to that corner just to kind of hear. So I still remember Officer Fitzgerald was like, Irish cop, just stand there. I was like, fucking, that was, that was the closest thing to God that I had seen. So with all that being said, um, when I started to, when I had a corporate security gig, um, that was great. It was lucrative. It was very rewarding. Um, and, and, you know, got to have a lot of cool experiences with it and all that, but Holy fuck. The, some of the corruption I saw first with LAPD, um, where, you know, we'd get something and certain sergeants would come over and they'd, well, you know, my brother's got a security company that really could come over and do this for you. And I'm like, you're selling me on your fucking brother's security <laughs> thing. Like, how about you do it? And I remember one time um, he asked in the middle of a crowded lobby that echoes, um, this guy said, so, uh, you know, uh, what kind of weapons do you guys have here? Like, yeah, let me tell you all of our fucking response capability yeah, in the middle exactly. of this and all that. And I was like, Jesus Christ, dude. Like, I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not Jason Bourne, but fucking hell have some, uh, you know, awareness of your situation, of your circumstances. Yeah. And then when, uh, and then when I was doing corporate security in New York, um, working with, uh, former NYPD guys, and I was disgusted with the boys club that I saw, not because of any sexism thing. I'm not saying boys club because that, but more, mostly just the, um, how this was all just, this was a cush job in their eyes that they were not going to lift a finger doing. And the way that they treated the employees underneath them, the way that they sold them out, the way that working peer to peer with whoever their counterparts were was way more important than taking care of the guys underneath them. Yeah, I was just disgusted. And I was like, fucking hell, man. Like, I get it, you know, bitching 15, 20 years ago, you were tackling guys in the projects and doing cool shit, but motherfucker, like how your diamond dudes out is not fucking cool. Um, so that plus other experiences I had with people that had resigned from big city departments and said, the corruption is just too much. There's everybody's con there's always a, some fucking moral dilemma or ethical dilemma that you have to fucking run into. Um, and they're like, small town is the way to go. Small town is you, you might, you might get an asshole chief or something like that, but if you can pick the right town, that's the way to go. Cause that's now you actually, the flash to bang between what you're doing and the reward and the results and the uh, gratification is right there. That's yeah. the better play. So I, I'm putting this whole lump of subject matter right in your lap now. So what, what am I missing? What, what's valid? What's your take on it in your point of view? So I, I've worked with departments, uh, city departments before where the corruption was there and it was the good old boy network that we call it, you know, where, you know, all the little rats rise together, you know, so to speak. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in those environments and, and it is truly a very toxic way to work, um, especially if you have your own moral compass and it goes against every grain in you. You know, that's why I ended up leaving my my uh, first department I worked in and I mm. went to a, the city I currently work in now. Um, and it's it's so much better. And uh, and it's just, you know, you, you get to see 
the right way of how things are being run versus the wrong way when it was being run, you know, uh, at my previous uh, police department where, you know, uh, people always, you know, cops there, uh, whether you're leader to lowest patrolman are getting indicted for something, whether, you know, details or you name it, whatever, you know, and, and it was, and again, to me, like, I didn't want to be a part of that. Like, nah, this isn't for me because I'm not going to one do something to jeopardize uh, my life or my career like that, um, where it's not worth it. Because one, you're not getting that reward satisfaction at, at all. You never did. Because even if you made an arrest, uh, they would bitch and moan why you made that arrest. So it's right. like they just wanted you to be kind of like essentially a firefighter and put fires out and that's it. Uh, I'm taken. <laughs> but uh then then you go you know to a city that's very proactive and is out there working and you got to do your job to show that you are capable of doing other jobs at the police department where you get into specialty units and stuff like that and and that to me was more driving to work for a city department especially when i learned that city department is very active and proactive and they take proactive cops and put them in specialty positions and stuff like that so to me that was more uh, of a drive to go to that department because i knew that department i didn't have to worry about those type of moral dilemmas because in the end everybody there is working hard because yeah. there are rewards that come with working hard uh, even to this day even you know, I'm still able to do things. I still do things where the rewards there, where that first, second, third order effects happen, where the neighborhoods get better and, and stuff like that because of, you know, some direct action that we took um, that that happened. And and with me, like with small towns, funny, like on my SWAT team, there are small town cops there too uh, who are on the SWAT team. And, and <laughs> to us, like city cops that are look at t- small town cops are like, yeah, you got small town problems not city problems, you know? So, so it's more like, okay, they're dealing with the champagne problems versus us. We're dealing with gangs, shootings, whatever. So we have, we, you know, city cops, we have a different attitude compared to small town cops, you know, Um, small town cops have the more, you know, listen, everything, sir, listen, sir, you need to sit down, right. you need to interact, whatever, whatever, right. where, where me at the city, I'm like, hey, motherfucker, if you don't sit down, I'm going to fucking lock right. you up. You know what I mean? Right. Where, where you got that rougher type mentality because of being a city cop. What, what was what was that Stallone movie that he did years ago with De Niro? Where he's where Stallone is like playing a cop in the small town with all the cops. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. What the fuck um, was that called? Copland. Copland. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I mean, yeah, I thought that that painted a really good picture of like, yeah, I'm just a small town cop. Yeah, the, all, yep. all the big NYPD guys come in here and shit on me the whole time and all yeah. that. Yeah, I guess that it makes sense. I mean, it makes it it makes sense in anything. It's that way in the military too. Well, I'm in this yeah. unit. Where I'm in that unit. You know, like. Yeah, there's always going to be that pecking order. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is absolutely. it worth it, though? Is it worth it to um, Is it worth it to kind of suck it up and go, hey, let me go big city for a bit so I'm going to get my stripes? And like, if, if you're starting out, if you're advising somebody that wants to go into a law enforcement career, we say, dude, go to big city first. Find out if it works for you. And if it doesn't, you can always, you know, then look for those. Yeah, transfer over. I I always, uh, I recommend for any brand new cop that comes up uh, to get into a city department. One, the the experience of working in the city is never going to match small town type feels. Um, I think, you know, you as a city cop develop a lot better in just that your first year on the beat 
as in a city, if you work a bad neighborhood, like I worked a bad neighborhood in the city of Boston, you know, a bad sector, actually. Uh, my first year, I probably made more felony arrests in, in one year yeah. than a, a small town cop would do in five. You know, so yeah. so it's not just like, yeah, yeah, you're hard charging, you're, you're, you're arresting, but not only that, but you're also learning criminal procedure right away, criminal law right away, uh, constitutional law right away. Like, it really comes together for you versus small town where... You know, I'll never forget. We had uh, one of our guys, um, one of our guys in the city, went to work for another small town department temporarily uh, because uh, one of theirs, uh, their officers, uh, passed away from a heart attack. So the whole police department went to the funeral. So we did like a mutual aid type thing where we'll just go cover, you know, their shifts. Oh, that's right. until, yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I remember uh, one of the guys saying, you know, he was so bored at the small town. He was twiddling his thumbs all day. Not one call came in. Like, they're like, what the hell? And uh, he goes into the dispatch center and says, Hey, uh, what goes on here? He's like, Oh, we might get one nine one one call a week. We're like, man, to, to us, that's two, three times in one minute, you know? <laughs> So, so it's like, it's, it's a bit different. I, I, I love reading the police blotter in my hometown now. Uh, yeah. It's it's fucking hilarious. It comes out like once a week and it's like guy left his front door open and ah, you know, the neighbor yeah. complained or something. And it's like, Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, small town problems. <laughs> oh my God. So funny. Well, I'll tell you um, as entertaining as this has been talking to you, uh, there is one wicket that you have not completed as a law enforcement guest on the weekly havoc, which is that we have yet to get you on the job, on the clock, in your car, doing the show the way Jeff Marshburn has done for us. So that wicked still <laughs> remains undone until yeah, I have you kitted up waiting <laughs> and still doing the show. Like while you're right outside, you know, stacked outside a door, yeah, yeah. it's just not, it, it, it doesn't really, you compare. never know one of these yeah. days. <laughs> hey brother, this has been awesome, man. Um, that's just a hell of a life, man. Um, can't wait to see what else happens. And, um, you know, always, you know, project sapient podcast is, uh, is a huge resource. I know you're doing great work with it. Um, appreciate it, but listen, let's talk again soon and, uh, we'll have you back on who knows. We may even have Jeff on too. And, uh, have a, have a whole law enforcement focused episode. Oh, heck yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, brother. All right, we'll talk bud. in a bit. Yep. We'll see you. To everyone else, the show notes, uh, which I guess there'll be some, there'll definitely be some, I can't promise that there's going to be a ton, but whatever there is, it will be out there. It'll be at the weekly Again, that's the weekly or in the accompanying article that I'll write at havoc journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast, just scroll up or scroll down and you will see all the show notes that you need to see as well as any alibis for anything I misstated, misremembered, misspoke. Um, I think I covered my ass. The, the only thing I can really think of is that I was, I, I didn't want people to think I was ashamed of my rank. That might've been something I would have made an alibi for, but I think I covered that up uh, well enough on the show. And of course that applies to I'm also, if there's anything like that, uh, that he wants to uh, throw an alibi out there for, he can do that as well though. As I always tell people, nobody really takes me up on that because I seem to be the only one that, brain farts the degree that i need to say something about it after the fact other than that uh i'm in, i really appreciate you being here to everyone else uh i'm getting all my ads confused here can you tell us the new year and i haven't done this in a minute so everything's just a little bit janky but i did want to throw in a plug for my savage wonder podcast um which is 
really what's messing me up now because I'm acting like I do at Savage Wonder, where I record these intros before and after the episode, and not like I do here, where I bake them all into the body of the episode itself. It's a little inside baseball for everybody listening. Uh, starting the new year with something new and intriguing for you. So my plug is for Savage Wonder. If you like this podcast, you may like Savage Wonder as well. It is a podcast, though, about warriors and artists. It is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And of course, full disclosure, that is my nonprofit. So if you want to hear me conduct one-on-one long-form interviews, just like the one I just did with Iman, except with people that are like Iman that also are artists, so how crazy is that? Uh, Listen to the Savage Wonder podcast. Consider adding to your queue. Uh, you can always find it at savagewonder.podbean.com. Again, that's savagewonder.podbean.com, or just put in Savage Wonder into any of your search functions on any podcast provider, and you will find it there. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Iman Caffell, and we'll see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. <laughs>